My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. Those are the first six verses of Psalm 108, which along with verses 33 to 43 of Psalm 107 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, August the 14th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thank you for being along with me today. We're, we're continuing our look at the life of David in 2 Samuel 16, 1 to 23, uh, the life of Paul, the trial of Paul in Jerusalem, actually, in this case, um, in Acts 22, verses 17 to 29, and then the first 11 verses of the 11th chapter of Mark's Gospel. So, here we go. We remember that that Absalom is coming to town to take over as king. He's coming to Jerusalem, and David and the people who follow him have fled Jerusalem. And so they're leaving, and, and they're coming. Yesterday, we had them coming up to the Mount of Olives. So they're now passing a little beyond the summit. So now they're, they're literally outside of Jerusalem for legal reasons. That would be considered outside of Jerusalem. During Passover, the boundaries of Jerusalem had to be great enough to, to include places for everyone to stay who was a pilgrim. And so they had to extend, extend the boundaries of Jerusalem outside the city walls out to the Mount of Olives. <coughs> And so that's where David is. They, they needed that much room for people to be, in, to be counted as in Jerusalem. And so they've had to extend the boundaries. And so here David goes outside the summit. Now this is pre any of those laws, but it's in the same place where Jesus and the disciples would have camped during the final Passover. So David passes a little beyond that summit. Then somebody comes out, and this is Ziba, who is the son of Mephibosheth. And if you remember who Mephibosheth is, he was Jonathan's son who was crippled. He was lame in his feet because when his ser- when the servant girl who was raising him fled with him, she dropped him and he was crippled from that. And so this, Ziba, is the uh, servant of Mephibosheth. And Ziba and his family had been assigned the job by the king of caring for the ancestral lands that had belonged to Saul, who would have been Mephibosheth's grandfather. And so, so he, David gave those lands, Saul's lands, to Mephibosheth and then instructed Ziba and his men, he had 20 slaves of his own, to go and work that land. And so now here comes Ziba to meet him with a couple of donkeys saddled, 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba says, the donkeys are for the household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit are for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who get faint in the wilderness, and it's for them to drink. And the king said, where's your master's son? Where's Mephibosheth? Why are you here and not Mephibosheth? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephusheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. Well, we're going to find out later that that that's not the right story. He's lied. But David, when when he finds out the truth, doesn't have like time or patience or whatever, to sort that out. And so he divides it between the two households. But I want to lay that groundwork now. I want to lay that down for you. I know we're doing a story here, but and we're following the trend of the story, but I need to tell you how this ends up. So Ziba's not a good guy. 
I'm convinced that he's not, based on the details we get later when David comes back. So David then comes to Bahurim, and then from there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul. So he's a Benjamite. His name was Shimei. His father's name was Gera. And he came out and he cursed continually. I mean, this guy is just railing at David and all the people that are there. And he throws stones at David's and all the servants of David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right side and on his left. And he said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you for you're a man of blood. And that's what... The Lord said David's not able to build the house for him because he's a man of blood. He's a man of war. The peace that's established under Solomon is what's going to bring about the time when the temple can be built and the people can live safely and securely in their land, which was a promise that God made to David. <clears throat> so then another man comes, Abishai, who is the son of Zeruiah. He's one of the captains of the army, comes and says, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. And David says, No, 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 no. It's possible because God sent him out here is why he's doing that and said to curse David. And then she'll say, why have you done so? So it's possible God sent him and I can't kill him if he's God's messenger. He deals with him later, by the way. And David said to Abishai and to all the servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamin, I mean, my own son's coming after me. And, and this guy has a legitimate grievance because I took over from Saul. Nope, leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So they went on down the road, and Shimei stood there still throwing stones and flinging dust and cursing David. I mean, it, it, it's an awful-looking scene, but at the same time, it kind of sounds Monty Python-esque when you listen to it a little bit. But the king and the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan River. So they're at the edge of the land, and there he refreshed himself. And on the back side of this, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem. And Ahithophel, who was the counselor that David had said the day before, remember David had prayed when he heard that Ahithophel was with Absalom, he says, may his counsel be turned to foolishness. And we're going to hear at the end of this, now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave is if one consulted the word of God, so was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. That's how important it is that Ahithophel is with him. And so then Hushai, the archite, remember him from yesterday? He came out to David and said, I want to go with you. David said, no, go back and frustrate the counsel of Ahithophel. And, and then keep sending me word about what's going on. So Hushai comes and says, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom, you can see he's side-eyeing him, right? He says to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why didn't you go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, nope. For whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel has chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. He, he said, I, I, I want to be on the winning side. I believe the Lord's chosen you, Absalom, so I'm going to stay here with you. I believe the Lord's rejected David. That's what he said. <clears throat> and again, whom shall I serve? Should it not be his son? As I've served your father, so I'll serve you. And so then uh, Absalom asks Ahithophel, what should I do? He says, go to your father's concubines whom he has left to keep his house and all Israel will hear that you've made yourself a stench to your father and in the hands of all those who are with you will be strengthened. So he's turning David into a cuckold. He, he's going in and he's going to sleep with all of David's concubines. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and then he went into his concubines in the sight of all Israel, which is exactly what God said was going to happen. 
that 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 we're, there'll be one who will come and lie with you with your concubines and make you uh, and and make you a pathetic loser essentially out of that. And so it, it begins. He begins to establish himself as the king and to to make David look like nothing in the people's eyes. Remember in this gospel lesson that they're coming from Jericho. This pilgrim band is coming to Jerusalem. They get to Bethpage in Bethany, which is where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived, and at the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two disciples and said to them, so, so he's pausing, coming into the city in the same way David did on his way out of the city, in the same place. So David's ushered out as king and stops in this place where he's cursed. And here Jesus is coming into the city. And he, he sends two of the disciples in and says, go into the village and front of you and immediately as you enter it you'll find a colt tied on which no one's ever sat untied and bring it to me and if anyone says why are you doing this you're to tell them the lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately and, and all this happened exactly the way jesus said that it was going to happen and so then they begin to throw their cloaks on the on the donkey because there's no saddle for a donkey so they throw their cloaks on it to make it more comfortable and jesus comes into town riding on this donkey that's never been ridden before in fulfillment of the word of the prophecy of zechariah and he's coming into town on a donkey, whereas Absalom entered it with his horses and chariots. That was an act of war. Jesus is coming as a king, but he's coming in peace. And that's the symbol of the donkey is the symbol of peace. And so Jesus comes into town, and those who went before him and followed were shouting, Hosanna, Lord save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. So what they're proclaiming is exactly what Bartimaeus had proclaimed in Jericho, and they're asking him to save them. And in that psalm that I began with today, that that passage, remember, it, it builds up the Lord. Be exalted, O God, above all the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And then says that your, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. And so that's it's that same idea of, of God is great, Come and save us. And what is he saving them from, right? I mean, is he saving them from the Romans? Is that what they're praying for? But they say, Hosanna in the highest. So save us in the highest, which is more than. But, but they're looking for the kingdom of our father David. But, but what is the Davidic kingdom and what is the Messianic kingdom? Is it an earthly kingdom? Is it something more than that? And do they know? which it is, but all this action in both these stories takes place in exactly the same place, and it looks exactly the opposite, right? David's going out of the city, being rejected as king. Jesus is coming into the city where he might be proclaimed as king. Absalom comes in on horses and chariots and, and then goes and sleeps with his father's concubines. Jesus comes in on the foal of a donkey, and he goes to the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he goes back out to that place where all this action started. So there's so much parallelism between those two stories, and, and it's almost like it was scripted, because it was. So in the, the, the final passage we have to deal with today is that Acts passage. And remember, Paul's been brought up that the, the people have, have falsely accused him of something. The tribune of the cohort has arrested him because he didn't know what was going on, he had come to a, an erroneous conclusion that Paul was an Egyptian, and he was shocked that he spoke Greek to get his attention and asked to speak to the people. And so Paul, when, when we left off yesterday, had finished the story of his conversion in Tarsus. He, he, he is 
Damascus, sorry. He is he finished the story of what happened to him on the road, and then he says, after that, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him, him the Lord, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I sort of wait. I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to them, Go, for I'll send you far away to the Gentiles. So Paul say, you know, the Lord's saying to Paul, Look, you know, this miraculous conversion you had, people are going to be suspicious about that, Paul. They're not going to believe you. It's dangerous for you to be in Jerusalem because of, of this heel turn in, in wrestling terms, this heel turn that you've taken here. That Nobody's going to believe that. Nobody's going to trust you. Nobody on either side is going to trust you, and so you need to get out of Jerusalem. And up until this point, it says they had listened to him. And this is the same thing that happened with Stephen, right? Stephen gets to the point, and he, he accuses the people of being stiff-necked, and that's when they turn on him. And here, it's when he says he's going to the Gentiles, because it proves for them everything that they believed about Paul, everything that these people from Asia had said about Paul. But, but, and so what it says is up until this point, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said to him, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Why? What is it exactly that they're accusing him of here? Why should he not be allowed to live? What did he do, and why is he worthless? These, these charges are, are very strange, but they raised their voices and said these things. It's the mob mentality. It's the same mob mentality where all these people who had acclaimed Jesus on the coming into the city on Palm Sunday are now shouting, crucify him, just five days later. And so here they've done the same thing. They've, they, they, they want to rid themselves of this menace, and they believe that Paul has taught against the law, taught against Moses, taught against Elijah, and that he has profaned the temple, which he had not done. None of it had he done. And so all he had said was, you don't have to be circumcised to come into the covenant any longer. You have to believe in Jesus to come into the covenant. And so that they want him gone from the earth, not just kicked out of Jerusalem. From the earth, he should not be allowed to live as they're shouting and throwing off their cloaks and fleeing dust in the air. I mean, you see this crazy scene. <clears throat> the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out what they were shouting against him like this. What has this guy done that he's not confessing this? Now, the tribune would be the head of the cohort, and the cohort was 480 men. It was six centurions. So the, the you would think that a centurion was over 100 people, but... At this time, they had changed that, and now it's six, six groups of 80. And so a centurion at this time is over 80 men, and the tribune was over six groups of 80 men, 480 people. So just giving you some context for that. And so then the centurion, who, who had been assigned to do the flogging, <coughs> um, when they stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen? And uncondemned. Oh. <laughs> when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. And one of the provisions for Roman citizens had to do with exactly that thing. You could not be tried. You could not be beaten without benefit of a trial and could not be tortured. And that's what they're going to do here. They're going to try him by torturing him and beating him. 
And so that's one of the things that's given to you as a Roman citizen that you're not that they're not allowed to do that to you. They could do that to a non-citizen. I mean, Roman citizenship was really important. If there's a murder and the person who was murdered is a Roman citizen, the the state would investigate it. But if you weren't a citizen, they didn't even care. They didn't even get involved in it. So the dichotomy between Jews and Gentiles is mirrored in in more ways than one in this Roman citizen versus not Roman citizen issue. It's the, and also their rights are different depending on where you're from. The rights of Roman citizens when they migrated to other cities depended on the status of the city. So the city that Paul says he's from is Tarsus, and that's, a, that's considered to be a Roman citizen, a Roman city. And so he can take that Roman citizenship wherever he goes. He doesn't lose anything at all anywhere along the way. And so the the other odd thing is is that um, you couldn't be have another citizenship if you were a Roman citizen. Um, it, whatever you if you were a citizen of a city that was not a Roman city, and then you d- became a Roman citizen, you had to renounce that other citizenship. And so it's an important thing. This Roman citizenship is, but. It also explains so many times in the Gospels when we're told that we are truly citizens of heaven. And when the Jews say we have no king but Caesar, they're rejecting God, but they're also claiming citizenship in Rome, not in God's kingdom. And it's important that we keep those two things straight and that we understand what we're citizens of. And so the tribune comes and says, hey, tell me, are you really a Roman citizen? Paul said, yes, I am. And the tribune said, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, I'm a citizen by birth, big boy, which means that I'm not a newcomer and you are. You're nouveau riche. I'm old money. And so this guy's now panicked. <laughs> they withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was afraid because he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Again, we're going back to the evidence of our eyes. You know, the, these guys misunderstood everything. And if you look at David's situation at this point in time, you're, you're not thinking he's coming back. You're, you're thinking this is going to be over for David, but, but it's not the end for David. David does come back and become king. And, and if you're looking at the gospel, what you're seeing is, is what appears to be the coming of the kingdom. But don't believe the evidence of your eyes because there's other stuff lurking in the background. So we have to be careful what it is we see. We have to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That's basically been the theme for the entire week because we have to to pay attention to the evidence of our eyes, certainly, but we have to take into account all the other things that are going on too, not the least of which is, but God. That's always got to be part of our understanding of what's going on around us is, but God, and that may change everything.